Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Scripture reading this morning before Brother Blackwell's lesson will be from Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 28. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he also searches the heart, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You may be seated. Good morning. It is so good to be here with you today. I always enjoy coming to West Huntsville. You are always gracious and kind and help me, and I appreciate this uh, sound and faithful congregation so much. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 8, and I will join you there in just a minute. Not long ago, I was visiting with a brother in Christ. He was 80 years old. He's been a Christian for many years, probably more years than I've lived in this world. He has been faithful in his attendance. He has been a constant worker in the Lord's church. He is a deacon. But in the course of our conversation, he teared up and he said, I hope I'm going to make it. I hope I'm good enough. While I was preaching in South Carolina, we had a dear brother there. He was a a close friend of mine. He had grown up in the church. He was the son of a gospel preacher. He also served as a deacon. This brother had polio, but he would come to the worship services And at times, he would cry in pain because it was so physically difficult for him to get in and out of his wheelchair, and I would help him get out of his vehicle, and sometimes he would just have to stop and say, wait, and and he would cry. But near the end of his life, he called me to come over and talk because he was worried. He told me he was concerned whether he had been good enough, whether he had repented adequately. Brethren, for the last several years, as I have traveled, I have included, as a part of my gospel meeting series, a sermon that I call Blessed Assurance. It's a study from the book of 1 John. And every single time that I preach that, afterwards I have people come up to me and say, I needed that. I worry all the time if I'm going to be okay. Oftentimes, there are Christians who are beating themselves up for sins of the past. They can't forgive themselves for things that God long ago has forgiven them of. They are worried about being good enough. Their words, not mine. Many Christians seem to have it in their minds that they have to be perfect. And so they're worried. And the irony is, it is usually some of the most faithful Christians who feel this way. I believe that in the Lord's church, oftentimes we've done a good job of convincing people that they're lost, but we haven't always done a good job of convincing people that they're saved. 
And so I really, really like the topic that we're going to discuss this morning. It's entitled, More Than Conquerors. More Than Conquerors. Now, of course, this phrase comes from Romans chapter 8 and verse 37. More than conquerors. It's three words in the English, but in the Greek, it is one word. This word is a phrase, this word means one who overpowers in victory. One who is abundantly victorious. Not just victorious, but abundantly victorious. One who prevails mightily. He doesn't just prevail, but he prevails mightily. Now, as we delve into the study of Romans chapter 8 this morning, I want to begin and set the context for you. In verse number 17, Paul says, if so be that we suffer with him. In verse 18, he says, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time. In verse 23, he says, we groan within ourselves In verses 35 through 39, he speaks about tribulation and distress and persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, death. And in the midst of these tribulations and these difficulties that so often lay us low, Paul is going to give us some spiritual sustainers. What is it that sustains me in this life to get me through the suffering? What is it that gets me through the groaning and the tribulation and the persecution and the distress and all of these things, the death, the things that we face in this life? He's going to give us at least four spiritual sustainers. And then when he gets to the end of this chapter, he's going to say in verse 37, we're conquerors. But notice this, we are more than conquerors. We are a abundantly victorious. We are ones who prevail mightily. Now, what are these spiritual sustainers that get me through as a Christian? I'm going to list for you four of them. I've started each of them with the letter P. The first one is pardon. The first spiritual sustainer from Romans chapter 8 is pardon. This comes from Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Notice what he says. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Brethren, I would suggest to you that this verse is parallel to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. In that verse, he says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now notice the comparison. In Romans chapter 8, he says, there is no condemnation. In 1 John chapter 1, he says, cleanses us of all sin. It's the same thing. No condemnation. Why? Because we're cleansed of all sin. Notice Romans chapter 8 says, this is for those who walk not according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. 1 John chapter 1 says, this is for those who walk in the light. It's the same thing. Walking in the light means you're walking according to the direction of the Spirit. Now look at verse number 3. He says, for what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son. Now what does that mean? He's talking about the law of Moses. The law of Moses could not cleanse men. Why? Because men sinned? Because they weren't good enough? Brethren, we are never going to be good enough. That was the problem with the old law. 
men weren't perfect, and because of that, they weren't good enough. In fact, if we were good enough, Christ wouldn't have had to die. We've got to get our heads around that. We're never going to be good enough. Now, somebody says, well, does that mean we can live however we want to? Are you saying once saved, always saved? No, it doesn't mean that at all. This is for a Christian who is trying to walk in the light. He is trying to walk according to the Spirit. But listen to this because this is very important. In verse 1, he says, this man who is a Christian, who is walking in the light, who's walking according to the Spirit, he says, for him there is no condemnation. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 8, he says, God will not impute sin against this man. What does that mean? This is the faithful man of Romans chapter 1, or Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, who is not living according to the flesh. He's living according to the Spirit. This is a man who is doing his best to live right. He is doing his best to do right. He is the man of 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7 that the Bible says for him, there is the continual cleansing of the blood of Jesus. Now, does he stumble? Of course he stumbles. Does he mess up sometimes? Of course he messes up, but he never gives up. He never stops fighting. When he goofs up, he repents, he confesses, and he keeps pressing on in the Lord. Brethren, this is very important. Romans chapter 4 and verse 8 says, God will not impute sin against a man like this. The word impute in the original language means to mark up against. Literally, it says, God will not mark up a sin against a man like this. He will not impute sin, not a single one. No wonder the text says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Can I commit sin? Yes. Is it imputed to me? No. And so, suppose a man obeys the gospel when he is 20 years old, and he walks in the light until death claims him at the age of 80, and so for 60 years, he keeps being faithful. He keeps trying. He gets knocked down. He gets back up. He keeps confessing his sin because that's part of walking in the light. He never walks away. He keeps on pressing on. Ladies and gentlemen, I am telling you that that man was saved when he was 30 and he was 40 and he was 50 and then all the years in between. Now, why is that? Because he had the continual cleansing of the blood of Christ. Because though he sinned, it was not imputed to him. Why? Because 1 John 1 and verse 7 says he has the continual cleansing of the blood of Christ. You know, many Christians have what I call the saved loss mentality. That is, they wake up in the morning and they believe that they're saved, and then they'll have an evil thought and they believe that they're lost, and they'll pray about it and they're saved again, and then maybe they go on and they lust and they believe that they're lost, and then they pray about it, and they believe that they're saved. And so in one day, they are saved and lost, and saved and lost, and saved and lost. And so their salvation really becomes dependent on the luck of the draw that hopefully I die during one of those saved moments. Brethren, the Bible does not teach that Christianity is not a constant process of being in and out of salvation hundreds and thousands of times throughout our lives. I am more than a conqueror. Why? Number one, because I have pardon. As a Christian, 
My salvation sustains me. Now somebody says, Don, do you believe, are you saying we don't have to repent? No, I'm not saying that at all. Because walking in the light, walking according to the Spirit, that involves a person with a tender heart. A person who as soon as he knows he's sinned, he's going to repent. He is grieved by sin. First John chapter 1 and verse 8 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Brethren, that pardon sustains me in life because no matter what happens to me, I know I've got heaven as my home. Why? Because of the pardon. Here's the second one. A second spiritual sustainer in this chapter is prayer. Now, this comes from verse number 26. He says, likewise, in addition to this, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Brethren, in addition to the strength that I draw from the hope of heaven, I also learn that the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead, is making intercession for me. Now, I am well aware of the fact that this is a difficult passage, and I know that some brethren have understood this differently, so please be patient with me. But would you appreciate that what is being described here is something that the Spirit does for me and not to me? This is something that the Spirit does in heaven and not on earth. And so the text here is not discussing a better felt than told, subjective, miraculous operation of the Spirit of God upon the heart of a child of God here on the earth. The Holy Spirit doesn't work that way. But notice that the text says, the Spirit helps our weaknesses. The King James Version says, the Spirit helps our infirmities. This word, no doubt, relates to the shortcomings and our inabilities as it relates to our prayer life. Now, why do I say that? Notice what he says. He says, for we do not know... Listen, we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. What is he talking about when he says, we do not know what to pray for as we ought? May I suggest to you first that in our prayer lives, we, don't, we do not know what to pray for because we don't have a knowledge of the future. Does not Solomon say in Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 1, do not boast about tomorrow for we do not know what a day may bring forth? I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but such is not the case with God. Secondly, in my prayer life, I don't know what to pray for because I don't always have an accurate knowledge concerning what is even best for me. Moses Lard, in his commentary on Romans, wrote this. He said, our weakness and ignorance in this life is so great that in many respects, possibly as a rule, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. We want many things, and it may be that we pray for them, which if they were granted would prove to be our greatest misfortune. While we do not want and do not ask for many things, which would be our greatest blessings. Here then is ignorance with regard to what we should pray for. Confessedly then, we are weak and we need help. 
Perhaps Solomon gave a summation of the point that we're seeking to make when he stated these words in Ecclesiastes 6 and verse 11. He says, For who knows what is good for man in this life, all the days of this vain life, which we spend as a, sh- as a shadow, for who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? Solomon says, We don't know what's good for us, but such is not the case with God. And so what I'm saying is this. I don't always know what to pray for. Number one, because I don't know the future. Number two, I don't necessarily know what is best for me. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul prayed repeatedly that his thorn in the flesh be removed. Now, I don't know what that thorn was. No one does. But Paul believed it was in his best interest that it be removed. Probably some sort of a physical infirmity. Paul prayed repeatedly, Lord, please take this away. But in verse 9, the Lord said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Verse number 7, he says that this thorn was given him, lest he should be exalted above measure. He said, I'm not going to take this away because you might be exalted above measure. Now, what's the point? Paul was pleading for one thing, but God said, that is not in your best interest, Paul. Not answering that prayer was actually going to be helpful. He said, my strength is perfected in your weakness. Ladies and gentlemen, may I suggest to you that sometimes suffering and painful things make me better? Sometimes they make me stronger. Sometimes they make me a more capable servant of God. And so sometimes I'm disturbed and even upset because it seems like God's not answering my prayer when in reality, by not answering my prayer, He's actually looking out for my best interest. And so when I think about sustainers that get me through the difficulties of life, I think about the pardon that I have. Number two, I think about prayer. Here is the third one, and it is providence. This is from verse 28. He says, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, first, I want you to notice that he doesn't say that God causes all things. Sometimes people will take this first to mean that. That is Calvinism. Out of curiosity, I googled the phrase that um, the Bible teaches that all things happen for a reason. I just googled that. The very first passage that came up in Google was Romans 8.28. A lot of people believe that God causes everything to happen, and he does it for a reason, and a lot of people believe that. A lot of people believe Romans 8.28 teaches that. And so you let something bad happen to you, and some well-meaning person will come, and they will say, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. God must have had a purpose for this, Romans 8, 28. I remember attending the funeral of a child when I was preaching in Statesville, North Carolina. There was a a little baby, a, a youngster, was killed in this car wreck, and the whole community turned out for this funeral. A denominational preacher was preaching this funeral, and he said words to this effect. He said, we don't understand why God does what he does. We don't understand why God took this child away. He must have wanted another rose in heaven. 
He implied that God was responsible for the death of this child. I would assert that sin was responsible. A drunk driver had hit this individual and killed this baby. It was a violation of God's will that led to the death of this child. No wonder people get angry at God when they think that God is causing their child to die. That's not what this passage says. Secondly, this passage does not say that all things that happen are good. He says all things work for good. All things work toward good. Brethren, I believe this is a passage on providence. What he is telling us here is God is in control. He is saying even when bad things happen, God can still use those things for good. And the Bible is filled with examples of this, things that seemingly were evil, and yet God used them providentially for good. Think about the life of Joseph. His brothers sinned. They sold him into slavery. They intended it for evil. But Genesis 50 and verse 20 says God meant it for good. His brothers intended evil, but God providentially took their evil and he used it for good to save his people. I want you to think about the life of Saul of Tarsus. He began by persecuting the church. Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, as a result of him persecuting the church... Calamity came to the lives of many people. Many people died. They were hurt. They suffered because the Bible says he wreaked havoc on the church. But this persecution from Saul led to people dispersing and preaching the gospel. And in Acts chapter 8, the church in Samaria was converted because of someone leaving Jerusalem during the persecution. Simon the sorcerer became a Christian as a result of this. I think about my own life. On May the 6th of 2019, the most tragic day of my life, I flipped a four-wheeler, severed my spinal cord, it's left me a paraplegic. Could God use even this? I don't believe God caused this. I don't believe it was good. But can God use even this? After my accident, we were converting my house because... I needed uh, some wider doors. I needed the bathroom adapted for me and so forth. And so we hired four contractors. In the process of them converting the bathroom over about a six-week period, I was able to study with, and we baptized all four of those men. One of those men is named Charles Warren. Charles, a while back, posted this on his Facebook. I had posted something about my accident and my pain, and Charles responded and he posted this. He said, I think a lot about the fact that if it wasn't for your accident, we would never have met. It changed my life when you shared the gospel with me. And I thought, here is something that is so tragic, and yet God is using it for good. Maybe there's a hard heart that can be opened because of my situation. Maybe there's someone who will be encouraged to persevere because of me. All things work together for good. What are the all things in this passage? All things work together for good. Again, Moses Lard in his commentary on Romans suggests this. He says the reference here is especially to the adverse events of life to its calamities, its hardships, its trials, all these by God's overruling work for the good of his children. Another commentator on the book of Romans said this, 
He said there is no thing that cannot work for good. Not poverty, not pain, not illness, not sin, nothing. Paul's messenger of Satan served God's purpose in driving Paul to greater dependence on God. Peter's ungodly denial of Jesus prodded him on to loving his Lord. Paul's persecution of the church, which he mentions on a number of occasions, inspired him to greater commitment. There is no thing that cannot be turned to your good and God's glory if you continue to love the Master. No thing. Blessings? What are these? If they turn you from God, they become curses. If your so-called blessings, your possessions, your health, your happiness, your athletic ability, your possessions, your education, your children, or any lovely thing, if they turn you unhealthily inward, they're not blessings at all. Disadvantages and tragedies, what are these? If the car wreck and the loss of your limb enables you to better serve God by understanding and serving mankind, you were blessed, not cursed. If your poverty increases your appreciation for the things you have, your disadvantage has become a benefit. God can use all things. As strange as it sounds, I look at my situation as a paraplegic and I hate it. But sometimes I actually count my blessings. And sometimes I actually think I'm better off because of it. Sometimes I think... I'm better able to serve the Lord because of it. But I want you to notice this in this chapter. The pardon that he discusses, that's only for children of God. The prayer that he discusses, it's only for the children of God. Here too, he says, all things work together for good. For who? To those who love the Lord, to those who are called according to his purpose. Who is that? The children of God. And so... How does this knowledge sustain me? How does this knowledge help keep me going? Brethren, regardless of what I encounter, no matter how bad it is, I remember that God is in control and he is working for my good. I read a story about a king many years ago in Africa. He had a close friend that he grew up with. And the friend had a habit of looking at every situation that ever occurred in life, positive or negative, and his friend would say, this is good. One day, the king and his friend were out on a hunting expedition, and the friend loaded the gun for the king, loaded the rifle for the king, but he did something wrong in preparing one of these guns. And so when the king fired the gun, it actually blew his thumb off. In examining the situation, the friend, as usual, said, this is good. To which the king replied, no, this is not good. You blew my thumb off. He was so angry, he sent his friend to jail. About a year later, the king had gone on another hunting expedition, and he was in an area that he should have stayed clear of. There were cannibals there. The cannibals captured the king. They took him to their village. They tied his hands. They stacked some wood. They set him, They put him on the stake, and they were uh, about to roast him. But as they came near to tie him to the fire, they noticed that the king was missing a thumb. Being superstitious, they never ate anyone who was less than whole, so they untied the king, and they sent him on his way. As he returned home, 
he got to thinking about his friend. And he thought, had it not been for the loss of my thumb, I would have been eaten today. He felt remorse for the treatment of his friend. He went immediately to the jail and he spoke with his friend and he said, you were right when you said it was good that my thumb was blown off. And he proceeded to tell his friend about everything that had just happened. He said, I am so sorry for sending you to jail for so long. It was bad that I did this. And his friend said, no, it was good. And he said, what do you mean it was good? How could it be good that I sent my best friend to jail for a year? And he said, if I hadn't been in jail, I would have been with you. And I have my thumb. (laughs) Well, what's the point of that? All things can work together for good. Here's the last point I want you to notice that I see in this chapter, and it is protection. What sustains me? Pardon. What sustains me? Prayer. What sustains me? Providence. What sustains me? Knowing of God's protection. Now, this is going to be verses 31 through 35. He's going to ask a series of questions here. In verse number 31, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That is to say, if such a God as I just described is for me, then what difference does it make who the enemy is? The point is, it doesn't make a difference. No one can beat me. There is no opponent strong enough. If God is for me, who can be against me? That's the first question. In verse 32, he explains it further. He says, this God that I'm describing did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That is to say, having given his own son, what will God not do for us? Friends, some people view God as this angry ogre in the sky who is waiting for me to mess up so that he can zap me into hell. He is saying here, that is not the case at all. When you understand the lengths that God went to to save you, you won't think that way. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16, I think is a parallel passage. He says, For we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. The New King James says, boldness. I should have confidence. I should have boldness about the day of judgment. Not worry, not fear, not sitting around wringing my hands saying, I hope I'm good enough. Here's the second question. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Think about this. God is the one who justifies you. Who could possibly bring a charge against you? And God gave his son for you. Here's the third question. Who is he who condemns? If Christ who died and is furthermore also risen, who is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. What he's saying is this. Who can condemn you? Christ is going to be your judge. Who's going to condemn you? Christ is your judge. Now get this. And he's making intercession for you. Your judge is making intercession for you. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, 
persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, physical suffering, hunger, poverty, persecution, paralysis, who's in the White House? What's he saying here? There is nothing that this world can throw at you that can separate you from the love of Christ. And then he concludes with verse 37. He says, yet in all of these things, that is in all of the difficulties that you can imagine, all of the trials and tribulations that you will encounter in this life, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now I want you to notice this. The promises here for pardon, that is the hope of heaven, are for those who are in Him, God's children. The promise of prayer and the benefits of the intercession of the Holy Spirit are for God's children. The providence, he says, are for those who love the Lord. This is God's children. And then the protection. Who can separate us from the love of God? This is for God's children. Friends, if you are in Christ and you are one of God's children, Romans chapter 8, is perhaps the greatest chapter in all of the Bible because it tells me no matter what this life throws at me, I've got spiritual sustainers to get me through. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest. Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.